following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Evening, evening. Great to have you here. Hope you've had a good week. My name's John, and tonight I'm going to be continuing on in our Ephesians series, where every week we've been looking at things that we are as a church. And tonight we're looking at we are united. We are united. And just to get your brains thinking a little bit this evening, maybe a little bit kind of feeling a bit sleepy after a Sunday afternoon. So just to get you thinking a little bit, I want to ask you a question. What defines you? What defines you? Who are you? Now, I'm not saying what's your name. I'm saying what, what, what makes up who you are? What are the, the ingredients of who you are? If I was answering, maybe I could say, uh, I'm 29. Or I'm half British. I'm half American. I'm a Liverpool fan. Now, you've got a couple. We've got a couple here. That's good. That's good. Maybe I could say, uh, I'm single. Or I'm a university graduate. Or I'm bearded. Are those, uh, are those the things that define me? Well, tonight we're going to be looking at who we are. And the passage we're looking at is Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And in this, it's going to tell us a little bit about who we are individually and how that impacts us corporately. So if you want to read with me, we're in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what does this passage say about who we are? Well, first of all, it says that we are fellow citizens. Once we were outside, and now we're inside, in what one Peter calls a holy nation. We're part of the, the, the kingdom of God. We're citizens. Now, a lot of you maybe think citizenship, cool, no big deal. I think that's because for a lot of us, we don't really grasp the significance of what citizenship is. See, citizenship says a massive amount about who you are and what you have. And I think a lot of us don't really grasp it because really, we were born in Britain, many of us here. And because of that, we don't really grasp that we have in British citizenship one of the most coveted and valuable things that you can have. There's literally people risking their lives to get what you did simply by being born. People who are are clinging to the undersides of trains just to get into this country. People who are suffocating to to death in the back of crammed lorries just to be here. People drowning in dangerous sea crossings just to get into Britain. And then when you get here, just getting to the country is hard enough, but then becoming a citizen is a whole other thing. 
Maybe some of you have been through the process or know someone who has, but it's not easy becoming a citizen. First of all, you've got to fill out all sorts of forms. And trust me, if you get one little mistake on those forms, it's coming straight back to you. And then you've got to spend all sorts of money, thousands of pounds, prove all sorts of things, send in all sorts of documents. And then after all that, you now have to take a citizenship test. Anyone heard about this? Anyone heard about the test? I don't know if you've checked it out online, but basically you now have to to take a test that proves you understand the British history and heritage and culture. I don't know if you've ever had a look at it. There's some weird random questions on there. And the, the funniest thing about this whole thing is most of us in this room who are British would fail it. Have you ever tried it online? I tried it last week online, twice, and I failed both times. It was embarrassing, and I've been a sense of boy. So, you know, it's, it's, it's such a difficult process just to become a citizen. And that's, you know, citizenship is such a massive issue. And for many of us here, citizenship's actually kind of a painful topic. Maybe for you, you're going through that process of trying to apply or get the money for it. Or you've got family members who are trying to get over. And the amazing truth about this passage is that your primary identity is not British. Your primary identity is not Romanian or South African or Nigerian or Indian or dual citizen or alien or stranger. Your primary identity is citizen of heaven. That's who you are. That's who you are. We're part of the citizen, we're citizens of heaven, which means we get all the freedoms and privileges and benefits of that citizenship. We get the, the freedom from sin and shame and greatest of all, from death. We get the right to, to enter into God's presence. We have the accommodation of an eternal home in heaven. That's what we have as citizens. We're part of an eternal kingdom, and God, King Jesus, is sat on the throne. Secondly, the passage tells us that we're members of the household of God. That means that we're part of God's family. And it would be amazing enough to, to just know God as king. To know that we know the the king of all the universe. But the the crazy thing about this passage is it says that not only do we know God as king, but we can call him father. And I don't know, maybe you've met the queen. I've never met the queen or the prime minister. And if we did ever meet, it'd probably be little more than maybe a polite little wave or cheeky little handshake. Or if I got lucky, maybe a stealthy selfie with the queen, which guaranteed to get at least 20 or 30 likes online. But even if that did happen, we wouldn't really have much of a, a meaningful relationship. But what this tells us is that God, even though he's the the king of kings and the lord of lords and the sovereign ruler of all things, he's also 
are bad. That's an amazing truth. And what does that say about who we are? It says that you are a child of the king. You're a child of the king. And that is probably the most significant thing that you can know about yourself. When you understand primarily your identity is a child of the king, everything else that defines you becomes secondary. Your wealth or your education or your looks or your background or your history, none of that pales, it all pales into insignificance in light of the truth that you're a child of the king. And it also tells us a lot about our relationship with, with one another. See, if, if God is our father, then that makes us brothers and sisters. We're family. And maybe if you're like me, you've grown up in church, you've all that, heard that loads before. You know, we're family. But I've been reflecting on this the last few weeks, and honestly, I, I think this is a lot more significant than we realize I think the more I've I've dwelt on it, I think that we're closer than we recognize. It's a bigger deal than we realize. So I think one of the problems is many of us, we view church a bit like a a club or society. And because we can choose to come or to go or opt in and out, we can kind of have a bit of a a consumeristic, non-committal approach to church. When I was at university... I joined all sorts of clubs and societies. Um, I joined football and ballroom, um, photography uh, and frisbee. I even joined skydive and massage society. And just to confirm, skydive and massage society were two different societies. It's not like we were giving each other back rubs as we jumped out of planes. But what happened in those clubs and societies? Well... What happened? As soon as they said, we want you to commit to helping out, or we want you to pay some sort of money, what did I do? See ya! I think the truth is, for many of us, that's kind of how we can treat church. We kind of see church as, you know, just something we can opt in and out of, don't really need to commit to. But that's not how family works. See, in a family, we're emotionally invested. We're financially invested. We put one another first. That's how family works, a healthy family anyway. We're closer than we realize. And I think one of the the things that really helps me grasp that is our relationship that we have as believers with one another isn't just a temporary thing. When you leave the church tonight, it's not like our relationship, our family comes to an end. Or when you leave the church, we cease to be family. Or even when we die, we cease to be family. This is an eternal relationship that we have. That means that you have more in common with the believer currently sat on a rubbish tip in India than your non-believing neighbor, colleague, friend, or family member. 
It's pretty crazy. That's how deep, that's how significant and meaningful our relationship is. In Ephesians 4, it says, we are one body. We have one spirit, one faith. We're one. It's a language of, of unity. We're, we're a united people. And in Ephesians 4, it says this. In, in, sorry, just skipping forward a little bit. Unity is massively important to God. In Psalms 113, it says, How good and pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. In John 17, just before Jesus is about to get arrested, he prays this famous prayer we call the, the high priestly prayer. And what does he say in this prayer? Well, three times he says this. Father, may they be one just as is we are one. So unity is a massive deal to God. It's not just, you know, a, a thing of, ah, oh, it would be nice if we were united. It would be cool if the church was a bit more united. Unity is at the heart of who God is. What's the, what's the perfect, the, the best picture of unity that we have? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity, three persons, one God, living together in perfect union. And so our unity is an overflow of God's unity. It's a reflection of his unity. That's why it's so important to him. And Ephesians 4, it, it says this. Paul says, I urge you to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What does that say to us? It shows us that unity is not just accidental. It's not just something you kind of trip into. You turn up to a church and you're like, wow, this is united. And you ask the pastor, how do you do it? And he says, oh, I have no idea. I think we just kind of tripped into it. And it happened one day. Now, unity is something we've got to fight for. We've got to work at this. The, the shift, the tendency is to go away from unity. We've got to maintain the spirit of unity, as Paul says. And the starting point is really understanding what unity is. And so we're going to look at four different things about unity. Unity is powerful. Now, I'm a big fan of war films. We got any war film fans here? Yeah? Yeah, I've got a few. Who likes Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, we've got a few. Big film. Emotional, but great film. Good film. What about Black Hawk Down? Any Black Hawk Down fans? Okay. This is a golden oldie. This is for the film buffs. Anyone ever seen The Guns of Navarone? And it's okay, a few of the older folks. I'm a big film buff. 1961, Gregory Peck. Go and watch it if you haven't seen it. Classic film. And I studied history at, at university. And I've always found military strategy interesting. Mil military uh, str strategy, how armies defeat one another. And what's the best way, for those who, who know a bit about the military, what's the best way that a smaller army can defeat a much larger army? Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Now, if you're a Christian here today, you are in a battle. You're in a battle. And you have an enemy. And that enemy is far smaller and far weaker than we are. And his strategy is to divide us. See, he, he, he doesn't have any real significant power over us, but 
He's looking to take as many prisoners, as many captives, and cause as much damage as he can. See, God has a plan for new community, but so does the devil. And his plan is to divide us. And so my question for you today is, what's your weak point? See, all of us, the devil is looking for ways through us to bring disunity. We all have a weak point. And I'll start off by sharing one of mine. Here's one of my weak points. Comparison. Comparison. Comparing myself to other people here. And it's a way in which you, you look at someone else and you think, okay, so for example, I might think, wow, why on earth did the pastor give them that leadership role and not me? Or maybe it would be, sorry, how am I single and he's married? He is so boring. <laughs> or it might be, oh, wow, she is selfish. Thank you, God, I'm more generous than she is. <laughs> and we laugh, and you know, it is, it's kind of funny, and it's good to admit these things. But the harsh truth, and I have to be aware of this in my own heart, is it's so damaging to think that way. It's so harmful to think that way. Because when we compare with one another, what we're doing is putting a divide between us. We're pitting ourselves against one another. We become, rather than a team, we become competition. And it's so damaging to think that way. Rather than being a, a person who can celebrate when someone else gets what I'd like. Maybe the marriage I've dreamed of the kids I've longed for, or the job I've dreamed of, or the healing I've spent years praying for. Rather than celebrating with that person, I compare myself. The root, ultimately, is pride and jealousy. i just got to call it straight up. So I want to go back to that question, whether it's comfortable or not to hear. I want to ask you, what is your weak point? We all have one. I've got a lot of them. And here's, here's, here's a few different ones. Maybe yours is comparison like me. Maybe yours is unforgiveness. Holding a grudge against someone here. Not being able to let go of that time they hurt you. Maybe for you, your weak point is gossip. And you're speaking about someone rather than to someone. Or you go on Facebook and share an angry rant about how angry you are with the church. Maybe for you, your, your weak point is busyness. You packed your schedule so full of things that when someone says, hey, I really need a hand, your response is always, oh, sorry, I'm busy. Maybe for you, yours is fear of confrontation. You're so nervous about not wanting to offend people that you just kind of let the tension simmer rather than addressing it and speaking the truth in love. Maybe for you, your weak spot is superficiality. You know how to smile in church and you put on your church face, but you're never open with anyone. When someone asks how things are going, you never are vulnerable with them. What's your weak point? These are all strategies that the devil uses against them and they're highly effective. But the Bible's clear says, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. 
If we say, you know what, we're not going to believe the lies that you tell us. We're not going to be trapped into your schemes and strategies. If we say we're going to stand firm and we're going to say, devil, no, we will not believe. We're going to think the, we're going to think the best of others. We're, not going to, we're going to believe the best in them. And we're going to say, Jesus, you are our focus and we're going to build our lives on you. Then the devil, if you're a united family, the devil stands no chance. If we are together... We are stronger together than we are apart. That's true. We're stronger together than we are apart. Secondly, unity is for the whole body. Now, the Bible describes us as a a body made up of many different parts. And we as a local church are a body, but we as a, a global and universal church are a body. And so unity applies to us here as a church but also applies to the the global church. So to get us kind of thinking about this, I want you to use your imaginations, and I want you to picture a leg, just one leg, and it's there, it's wearing a ballet shoe, and the kind of ballet leotard or leggings or whatever ballet dancers wear, and it's just a leg, and it's perfectly pointed and straight, perfectly straight leg, pointed toe, and then the leg says... If legs could speak, it would say, look how united we are. All the muscles lined up together and look how perfectly pointed the toe is and we're so united. And then picture just kind of zooming out a little bit from that and you see the rest of the body. And the rest of the body is wearing a tuxedo. And the rest of the body is trying to do the waltz. So you've got the body trying to do the waltz, this ballet leg, and the, 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 the body's kind of going around like, leg! Leg, what are you doing? We're trying to do the waltz. What's going on down there? And the leg's just ignoring them. Come on, leg! We're doing the waltz! And eventually the leg replies, hey, look how united I am. Hey, and anyway, you guys are so old-fashioned. Who's doing ballroom these days anyway? You know what, to be honest, I question whether you're real dancers at all. Sometimes I think I'd just be a bit better off if I was detached from all of you. Or maybe picture this, maybe picture a hand, five fingers, and the fingers come together to make a fist. And the fist, the hand says, look how united we are. Five fingers united perfectly to make a fist. Great, okay, amazing. We'll zoom out. And then you see a picture of that perfect fist and what's it doing? Punching the body in the face. Maybe that's a silly illustration. But you know, I think if we're humble enough to admit it, I think that's how some of us Christians have lived. I know it's not comfortable to do sometimes, but I think it's worth admitting our mistakes and where we've gone wrong. I think, honestly, sometimes churches like ours and church movements like ours, we haven't always done as well as we could have in this area. And I think some of it comes out of a a healthy place. I think there's a real desire to um, have really strong theology, and we really do believe we want to be based on the Bible One of the side effects has been we've got so focused on secondary issues that we spend more time thinking about our differences than our similarities. 
And I think some of it maybe is a side effect of being a, a larger and growing church. And because, you know, we're bigger and, you know, we're maybe one of the larger churches in the area, we can have a tendency to think, well, maybe we're the epicenter of all that God is doing here. You know, we're the, the big thing going on in Sidcup. We're God's favorite. We're the bee's knees. You know, we're the center of all of it. I think it's so important that we're aware of this. Other churches, we are not in competition. We're on the same team. God doesn't love us any more than he loves them. We are together. And so when they mourn, we mourn. When they celebrate, we celebrate. We pray for their leaders. We pray for their congregations. Our desire, our goal, is not that the name of New Community Church would be made famous. Our goal is that the name of Jesus would be made famous. Our cry is that of Psalms 115. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. That's our prayer. And there's some really exciting things happening in terms of unity, both in our area, around the country, and around the globe. We've got an excellent Archbishop of Canterbury, an excellent Pope. There's churches working together like never before. Movements united like never before. And isn't it our prayer that God would make us a united family? We've got a broken world and the last thing they need is a broken church. Our desire is that we be a united family based on the unchanging truth of the gospel. Third point. Unity is not unanimity or uniformity. Bit of a tongue twister for you there. Unity is not unanimity or uniformity. Let's be honest. Unity would be a lot easier if we were all the same. If we were all one people, you know, we uh, were one culture, one age, we just had one location, one meeting. If everyone liked the same songs, the same style of worship, the same volume of worship, some of you know about that one. If you all spoke the same language, liked the same sense of humor, it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? All the same if we were uniform. But unity is not most powerfully displayed in uniformity. Unity is most powerfully displayed in diversity. I don't know if you were here last week, but James gave such an excellent message in which he talked about how a united church is one where there is racial reconciliation, where people and nations who were once divided come together. And one of the really key things he said as well was that when we come to church, when we come to God, we don't have to forget all those things about who we are. We don't have to ignore our culture or our heritage or our age or our gender. We don't ignore those things. In fact, as a church, we embrace diversity. We're not looking for uniformity. And and with this, unity uh, unity in diversity means that we don't have to agree about everything. We don't have to be unanimous. See, everyone here is unique. There's not two people in this room who would agree on everything. True? 
And so like in any healthy relationship, in a healthy church, there can be disagreement. But what we do is we learn to disagree well. We have those awkward conversations. We have the difficult, robust debates. But we do it in love. As a pastor I heard once say, we learn to disagree agreeably. I think that's such a helpful kind of little reminder of how we act with one another. We talk, we communicate, and we do it in love and humility. And here's why we embrace diversity and why we're happy with differences. Because why we may at one point be so different from one another, there is a common thread that runs through us all. There's a common denominator. There is something, or should I say someone, that is at the heart of our unity. See, we're a house here built of bricks of many different sizes and shades and strengths. But we're a house built on a cornerstone. And that's Jesus Christ. He is our cornerstone. And so, while we may have many different outlooks, we have one vision. And that's to see Jesus glorified in Sidcup, in Eltham, in Europe, and to the ends of the earth. Many outlooks, one vision. That's our desire. How do we become a more united church? By building our lives on Jesus. Serving like him, forgiving like him, loving like him. Fourth, unity is a sign. How did Jesus say that people would know we were his followers? How do people know that we're Christians? Is it that we meet in a building with a steeple? We meet on a Sunday? Maybe we have a fish sticker on the back of our car? Is that how people know we're his followers? Well, the answer is in John 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And we really do live in a a broken world. And what's at the heart of, of all that brokenness? It's disunity. Countries divided. Man and wife divided. Families disunited. And that's why the message of unity is so powerful. It's because it stands out. And our solution to disunity is also so different than our societies. What's our society's solution to disunity? Tolerance. Tolerance. What's Jesus' solution to disunity? Love. See, tolerance, when there's a disagreement, tolerance says, okay, you know what, you do you, I'll do me, I'll stand back. You know, we're not going to get into this, you know, we'll just learn to disagree. You know, I'm not going to kind of get my hands too messy. I'm not going to, you know, make any waves. You just get on with your life, I'll get on my life. It's cold, there's no heart change. Tolerance, to be honest, is pretty easy. Love, on the other hand, is hard. Because love gets its hands messy. Love says, I'm getting involved with this. We're going to talk this through. I'm going to forgive you if you end up hurting me. 
I'm going to bless you even if you end up causing me harm. See, the end goal of tolerance is coexistence. But the end goal of love is unity. Do you want to truly be a new community? Love one another. So unity is, is not a secondary issue. It's not just a nice idea and you think, oh, it would be good if we could try and do that as a church. Unity is a, a central gospel issue. It's at the essence of Jesus' message. And so we've got a, a fight to see, okay, God, we, we want to see this in our church. And it's a, a big part of this is because it's, it's, a, it's kind of a foreshadow of a day we read about in Revelation of an eternal day that's coming, where every tribe and nation will be reconciled, where every class and creed will be worshipping God, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the day that we're living for. And our prayer is, your kingdom come. We want to see a glimpse of that day today. We want to see a glimpse of what we read of that that beautiful day. We want to see that here in our midst, don't you? We want to see that. We want to say, your kingdom come. And our prayer, our dream, is that this church, and and I say all this, we're getting there, we're close to it, and we're doing well, but I don't know about you, I I, I just believe there's more. And And our dream is that one day we would truly be a church of old and young, rich and poor, married and single, light skin and dark skin, where we see people in suits and tracksuits, pushchairs and wheelchairs, where we see refugees next to reformed racists, executives next to ex-offenders, people who'd have No other reason to cross paths, but here are one in Christ. Together, united, fellow citizens, family, brothers and sisters. That's our dream. We say, God, do it. Do it here in New Community. We want to see your kingdom come. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.